0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW proof. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Chumba Casino dot com.
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Sometimes in football, you have to hold your hand up and say, "Yeah." they're better than us. Those are the old words of Sir Alex Ferguson but this is also a man who openly admitted time after time I don't like losing and said I tell the players that the bus is moving this club has to progress and the bus wouldn't wait for them I tell them to get on board. The greatest foot manager of his era Fergie is remembered for the victories an insatiable desire to win a commitment to glory so thorough and disciplined that he saw off rivals in all shapes sizes and forms over more than two decades. But what about the defeats because there were many of them 200 to be precise. Well, Ferguson himself has said the following, losing is a powerful management tool so long as it does not become a habit and you learn more from defeats than you do from victories. Um, In a new book titled Even the Defeats, journalist John Silk tells the story of how the painful moments of Sir Alex Ferguson's reign at Manchester United inspired him to lead the club to its greatest successes. Beginning with a 5-1 loss at Manchester City and ending with the final Premier League title. The book looks at what was perhaps Ferguson's greatest is strength dealing and overcoming adversity with views from players coaches and other members of staff even the feat is out already and I'm pleased to be joined by the author John Silk to talk about Ferguson those defeats and the book in general John is a journalist working for Deutsche Welle he's covered sports and international affairs for more than a decade and has followed United for 40 years Um, John thank you for coming on the Manchester United weekly podcast Um, it's a exciting new topic for a book
2: yeah um it is um uh, it's one i've been considering and it's been there at the back of my mind for a long time uh it kind of came to the forefront of my mind probably in the last couple of years when i started really seriously considering the book and the more i thought about it the more i could see uh, a relationship between you know some of the best moments uh in in you know as being a united fan during the ferguson era Every time I, I found the top moment, whether it be 99, whether it be 2008, whether it be some of the great Premier League titles and, and possibly none more so than his last one in 2013, mm. every time I looked at it and analysed it, I could see a relationship and, and, and a serious lineage, a serious line between, you know, a bad moment, if you like, a setback, adversity. And and you mentioned that in your intro that Ferguson was never better than in adversity, and he pretty much says so himself on, on many occasions.
1: Yeah and i thought i'd I'd dive straight in there to begin with and ask you what you think the the greatest of all the setbacks was and i think I think as fans we can kind of uh remember maybe the the biggest score lines of defeat uh and the sixth one was the, the last massive one of those against city but I think sometimes the setbacks are in are kind of in fact the the periods rather than one certain match, in fact, the the periods of struggle um, that maybe fans remember less conveniently and less immediately. But w- writing the book, what did you come away with thinking this was the moment where Ferguson was at his best, where he he came from the lowest ebb and to the highest peak?
2: I think um, probably when you, when you frame, frame the question like that, I think probably would be the sort of 04, 05 period 06 um the the years when we were we you know there were other years when we just missed out on the title 95 obviously is obvious 92 to some extent 98 Mm -hmm. you know but they were probably very explicable and you could cite particular reasons i think for both fans to some extent and maybe even ferguson himself or certainly certainly the way he recovered because it was such a stretch it was such a period and 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 losing at Benfica in 05, I think it was December, where I think there were many fans and certainly pundits who thought, you know, that was the end and it was going to be a sad end in a way. And it was going to be an end possibly like Wenger kind of experienced a decade later. And I think we all feared that. We'd still remember him as being one of the best, if not the best managers in United's history, even if he'd gone out on a slightly lower ebb in sort of 06, 07, if he hadn't quite managed to drag the club from that period. But I think the reason why for Ferguson it's also particularly impressive is just because, you know, I think he was looking at the longer game. There were other things going off, on, off the pitch, but let's talk about on the pitch, you know, his investment in players like Rooney and Ronaldo uh, and the way he did learn from Wenger, from Mourinho, I think it's a really underrated strength that that Ferguson would, would not be too proud all the time to not learn from others. And I think that would be the period and that would be the setback I would say used because it's over a period of time other than just one individual defeat that probably gives him and and even fans a a lot of pride and joy. If there's one setback though, that probably hurts him or hurt him the most, I'm going to have to say two. Uh, I think time losing the league in the manner in which they did in 2012, losing that, you know, devastated him. And, you know, knocked the wind out of him to some extent. And even his family, I mean, he talks about his wife not wanting to, or, you know, his wife says he didn't, she didn't even want to go out because she was too afraid of meeting City fans. And I spoke to Paul Hayward uh, at length about this and, and how devastated Ferguson was about it. Um, however, he recovered from it and he responded a year later. And he, and, and, and Paul Hayward also spoke about how, You know, his response to that was was magnificent. And Ferguson told Paul Hayward about the level of hurt that that gave him also strengthened his resolve. The amount of time he'd spend analyzing opponents, the amount of time he'd spend in the in the video analysis room was driven and partly down to the manner of the defeat from the year before. But there's probably a defeat or two possibly you could say that he didn't recover from. And therefore, I think retrospectively in the six years or seven years since he retired, that. I think 2009, the yeah. Champions League final, and that's obviously something I talk about as a fan in the book, just because he never quite got the legacy in Europe, the, the, the United yeah. era that he so yearned
1: for. I think, I think for, uh, certainly for me, I think that's the, the single most painful game I can remember. Um, it, it was because, and, I, and you mentioned this in the book, because there was so much confidence going into that game. European Champions 2007 we'd been close to a treble 2008 the double 2009 there was still the the expectation that Manchester United were the the world's best team and it it wasn't just the the defeat and the result but the the manner in which Barcelona just dispatched of this incredible united side made the hurt so much more and I yeah I think that's one that whereas the aguero moment I think was made up for with such a dominant 2013 title victory. I I don't think 2009 was ever made up for.
2: No, that's the, that's the one that there was. I mean, obviously 2013 was painful too. And, uh, but I do think there's a bit different with 2013 because although that hurt Ferguson immensely at the time, and that's talked about in the book and Renee Mullenstein gave me a lot of insight into that defeat and, and how Ferguson was afterwards. Um, I think with that defeat in 2013, there's not much really Ferguson could really have done differently. I mean, he set the team up amazingly home and away. We probably were the better team for 75-80% of that. And of course the, the sending off of Nanny. And whereas 2009, there's a lot of regret, I think, with that. And going into the final as favourites. And you win that match, and suddenly Ferguson can retire, knowing that that we had what what he always wanted, which was a united era of if not dominance, you would certainly call it the yeah. United era, given as you highlighted, 2007 being so close, winning it in 08, winning it in 09. You know, you've got a, a nice body of work there that, you know, for three, four years, you know, we got to the final again in 2011, but we were a long way off Barcelona by then. Um, yeah, that's, 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 that's the one really. And, and we could have and should have done better. I, I talk about it in the book. And I think, um, Kiros's absence on the training pitch. I speak mm. about it a lot regarding the 2008, you know, Champions League victory. And uh, I think his absence meant that Ferguson felt in a way, in '09 nine and then also in 2011, there was no other way that Ferguson felt comfortable setting up a team. So he wanted to be open. And I know we played three in midfield, but there's so many different ways you can play, you know, three in midfield that this uh, we were still very aggressive, I think, in terms of the first 15 minutes. It was going behind that, that killed us that night. And Ferguson has a lot of regrets about that game.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Kiros and I think that for all of us that uh, there's a for some people it's kind of a willing acceptance and for others it's kind of a reluctant acceptance that he was so crucial to, to 2008. Um, and I'd be interested in more about uh, the the journey from the AC Milan semi-final defeat in 2007 to Moscow in a second. But you've spoken to you mentioned René Mullenstein and, and many others um, journalists, coaches, ex-players. And it, it clearly changed over time and, and depended on the scenario. But can you attempt to summarise the, the default standard response of Sir Alex Ferguson to a setback, to defeat? And I, I think from my perspective, having not studied it in the detail that you have, it, it, it seems kind of to be broken down into the convincing the fans to carry on trusting him. Whether that's through the media or a change in performances, and then the internal uh kind of diplomacy in the dressing room um but i mean you you go ahead with your knowledge
2: sure uh, I mean Renanenstein uh spoke about that and we'll talk about it in three phases um there would be the sort of the first phase in terms of the dressing room uh how he reacted, and sometimes he'd be unpredictable in the dressing room and, and the players kind of, I mean, Ferdinand also spoke about that level of unpredictability on on occasion. I think he liked that, that that sometimes that they would expect to get a bollocking and they would get the arm around the shoulder or, but, but in general, Ferguson's reaction to defeat would just be, did they let the players, did they let themselves down? You know, I think in 2009, for example, he did think he let themselves, you know, they let themselves down. Michael Carrick has spoken about that on more than one occasion. Um, but yes, yeah, so there'd be that reaction in the dressing room. Now, that may also be at half time, by the way. Uh, and Ferguson was a master at uh, getting his message across being angry with players, for example, and yet still motivating them. We know that some people don't take well to criticism. Um, but, you know, Ferguson could also do it in a very clever way. He could say you're better than that, you know, which is a, an excellent phrase to use with a player who's being chastised. And yet he's going, wow, you know, he thinks I'm a good player. Uh, and he, and he's going to go out and, and perform better in the second half, for example, or, or the following week. Um, there's also that bit that you spoke about with the media. And I think when it came to the media, Paul Hayward speaks about it and how he would, you know, get himself ready for the media. And this could be on the Friday before the match, and this could also have followed a, a defeat a few days before. And Ferguson would go on the attack and he'd be ready for it. And um, he But he'd want to get a message across, you know. Uh, Clive Tilsley told me that, That once that, uh, you know, he interviewed him after a Manchester Derby defeat in 2002 and Ferguson was raging about about the players, basically, and how he wanted to let the fans in to let them know what it meant to lose a Derby. And Clive Gilsley joked that he could have asked him what the capital of Ecuador was that day and (laughs) and Ferguson still would have responded the same way. Um, So I think Ferguson knew what he was doing. And there was often a message in this time that he wanted to get the fans on board, too. Uh, and it didn't matter how he would do that, um, and 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 we did. We were all singing from the same hymn sheet, and I think that's where Ferguson, the leader, comes in, and 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 even the media and even opposition were were singing from the same hymn sheet. If you like that, that they would believe that we were better in second halves of seasons, even though if we really closely scrutinise some of the statistics, particularly in the nineties when this narrative emerged, actually a different pattern emerges. But it doesn't matter if people are on board. And this is kind of almost, a you know, a politician, a leader getting everyone on board, whether that be, you know, fans, players, backroom staff, or even opposition people, if you like. Um, so then there would be a third phase, which Renny Mullenstein also speaks about as well, where, and this this was a nice touch that, that Mullenstein would really appreciate, where, you know, he'd go into the you know, opposition, dressing room, shake hands after losing against Porto, I think it was, in 2004, sharing a bottle of wine with an opposing manager, with the exception, of course, of Wenger, as we all know. Um, and this will be the third phase that, that, that Rene speaks about at length in 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 both the forward but also in the book as a whole. And I found it fascinating. And and I think we all did, didn't we? I mean, listen, when we lost 6-1 to, to Man City, I, I was devastated by the result, of course, in, in 2011 but I also wanted to know what Ferguson had to say. I was desperate and, and I was desperate to know what to say after other defeats and other setbacks. And, and, and I was desperate to know, but I was also on board. You know, he, I would be promoted yeah. as a fan and that was the stranglehold he had over everyone really at the time.
1: Yeah. It seems different to now when I think over the last few managers, after a defeat like that, you hear them, you're, you're looking for the mistake in what they say uh, to kind of justify your your frustration at result. Whereas with Ferguson, I think you, you look to what he said for, for, for kind of guidance, for comfort to know what to think about the game. And I, I don't know. I I think that there's not many managers who, who have replicated that control over a fan base.
2: Yeah. Right. I mean, um, I completely agree with Ferguson, of course, for the last 20 years, pretty much, with the odd exception, he had success to to back him up. So I guess that helps. But but he he galvanized everyone and, and the fans as well. We just you know, we loved it. We loved when he talked about noisy neighbors or we loved it. And we, we were on board with that. Um, we loved it as well, even in defeat when we had a crushing defeat against, you know, or not knock, being knocked out by Bayern in 2010. And he came on TV and he said, typical Germans. Even though, like you know, seven of the eight players surrounding the referee were not German, we didn't scrutis- scrutinize it. We just loved it. We, we, it was great that he felt like we did, and and he was as as upset as we were. So, uh, I mean, when you talk about the modern day and the reaction to defeat, the, the one of the ones that sticks out for me since twenty thirteen and the reaction to it was Mourinho's reaction to the not when we were knocked out by Seville in two thousand eighteen. I think it was February March time. That for me, I I was. You know, I was still wanting to win titles, of course, and you always do, but but that reaction that Mourinho showed, and he talked about heritage and what he meant by that was United's, you know, lack of success in Europe in in recent years. Well, that was not what we wanted to hear. We wanted to hear that losing to Seville, because, by the way, you know, that's fair enough to say that under Ferguson in in 2013, we went out, you know, in the the knockout stage. The year before, as well, in the group stage. But generally, if we went out under Ferguson... In the latter years, with the exception of that group stage knockout, we went out in two thousand and seven. Okay, to Milan. That's fine. Semi-finals. We lost to Barcelona in two thousand nine, two thousand eleven. You know, that's fine. You know, it's not great. We don't like it. We we we're upset about it, and we know the hurt. But we're not. You know, we know that the manager has done what he can. Two thousand and ten, yeah. Bayern. These are this is a completely different situation. Real Madrid, two thousand thirteen. That's completely different to going out to Seville you know, with all due yeah. respect. And Mourinho's reaction to that was, well, I think that, that he lost the fans really from that moment onwards. I mean, yeah, some might say he never had them on board, but, but um, yeah. at that stage he was gone for me.
1: Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to take a, uh, a small part of the book and um, get an insight into um, that particular section. And I think uh, for me, I'd be interested to hear how United got to uh, as you put it in the book, Red Square delight in Moscow in 2008, and it's it's an interesting one because I, I spoke to Clive Tilsley and Daniel Harris for a couple of episodes back in April, looking back at the 7-1 against Roma and then the uh, the games against AC Milan in the the semi-final, and it, it, the mistakes made that saw United lose to AC Milan in that semi-final were so efficiently corrected the next year that it, it's kind of that, that seems obvious but there was obviously so much more before the defeat to AC Milan that allowed United to make just little tweaks in terms of um players in the midweek games in the premier not midweek in the weekend games in the premier league to make sure United got through to the 2008 final all that foundational work from 2001 to um, can, you, can you kind of describe that as, as it's in the book?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Ferguson was so desperate by then to win a Champions League um, somehow or another that, as you mentioned, the difference between Milan, for example, in 2007 and then winning in oh eight. I mean, I remember between the two Barcelona games, we played a huge game against Chelsea and he rested three, four, five players. and. Three, four, five big players, actually, I think. Unfortunately, Rooney still got injured, I think, in the in that Chelsea match in between the two legs. But whatever. You could just tell that that's how much it meant. And how how the, you know, I really Ferguson talks about going out to Milan. And there's disappointment and regret, of course. Um, but he also recognises that the conditioning of the squad, I think the squad was a little thin that season. We'd probably got away with it a bit domestically until that. You know, period of the, of the season and, and we had a good enough cushion in the league that it didn't matter so much. But we did get found out against uh, Milan to some extent, but our defence was ravaged with injuries. And I don't think he wanted to have the same injury situation again a year later, no matter what. Which is interesting because when it gets to that final in 2008, that was the eleven. That I think all fans and Ferguson knew was the eleven that he wanted to put out. He wanted that 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 when we got Hargreaves the summer before and, and we also got Tevez, they were first team starters really that he aimed to have in the team. Nanny and Anderson were bought with a bit more long term and we're gonna be squad players. And do you know how many times that 2018 played together? As a, as a starting eleven? I'm gonna assume
1: it was it was none before that.
2: It was none before and it's been none since. So once. <laughs> And it was like a crescendo, if you like, and that was the eleven that I'm. Well, I mean, listen, it, there's no more evidence than than to say that we went into that final. I think Saha was the only Saha was the only player that was unavailable through through other, or Gary Neville as well, but but whatever. I mean, that that was the eleven that he wanted, and he got them to the peak at the, the right time, if you like. And that was really folks I would often talk about peaks. I think that journey, of course, though. I mean, you mentioned sort of oh one oh two, the journey really begins in two thousand. Unlike the 93 to 99 journey, which was generally upward, the the 2000 to 2008 journey is kind of downward from, from 99, if you like, until it gets to a rock bottom period, uh, losing to Benfica in the group stage when we went out, to then sharply going back up again towards winning it in 2008 and kind of still staying at the top even by 2009. And uh, the 2000 evolution to 2008 is interesting. So many people have covered this, but but it's kind of clear with the, with the way that we went out in 2000 um, to Madrid that we were too cavalier. And the idea of winning the Champions League like we'd won it in 99 was very quickly abandoned between 2000 and 2002. The Verón basically purchase wasn't a defensive purchase. Verón was not a defensive player, far from it, you know. But it did mean having three bodies in the centre of midfield. That was the idea, at least. Unfortunately, Varon's tactical discipline and I think also Keane's intimidation meant the whole experiment just didn't work and uh, effectively, in a way, blew up in Ferguson's face to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just meant there was a gradual decline until that Benfica result in 05. Now, of course, also in this period, which is crucial, Two things, if you like, uh, or three, arguably, if you throw Rooney in as well, his evolution. But it's 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 the Ronaldo effect, if you like, that when he came in in 04 and Carlos Quiroz, that when, when Ronaldo was signed, sorry, I think it was, yeah, it was 03 Ronaldo was signed, same summer that Beckham went. And this is something that I haven't seen talked about at all by anyone. But I remember when we won the league uh, on the penultimate sort of weekend of the season and uh, Ferguson was interviewed on TV. And he was asked about, you know, the, the winning the league. And all he wanted to talk about, really, or certainly the thing that hype, that struck for me was he wanted to talk about going out uh, in the Champions League that year in the quarterfinal to Real Madrid as well in sort of Beckham's sort of last hurrah. If you like, he came off the bench and all the rest of it. We we kind of know that that result. And Ronaldo, uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo's hat-trick. Um, but what he spoke about, interesting, which I've never seen anyone talk about, you know, before or since, sorry, and and I mentioned the book, is he spoke about... How he want he was kind of talking about how Madrid had players that could beat another player, could go past another player, and suddenly you're a man up. So uh the idea that he felt that Beckham could possibly do that was obviously not the case, although he didn't mention him, of course, by name. But he did think that Ronaldo could do that. of course, he didn't mention him by name because this is May 2003. This is a couple of months before, you know, that, that in and out happens. But that was crucial. And he felt that players like Figo, even Zidane, in the way he'd bring the ball down, could take two players out in one touch. Figo, mm-hmm. the Brazilian Ronaldo, Raul, to some extent, the, the, you know, the Madrid striker, all of these players could go past people and, and beat them. And suddenly, when you are counter attacking, for example, this is crucial. We all remember how Redondo, basically left um, John O'Shea was it behind down the, down the wing and John O'Shea was basically in a different, different time zone by the time, you know, Redondo was at the, at the, at the touchline, pulling it back for Raoul to tap in. So, so uh, that was an interesting thing that as well. And then of course, Carlos Kiros also comes in around the same sort of time. Um, and Kiros is And Rennie Mullenstein to some extent in, 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 in you know, Cristiano Ronaldo's development and the evolution of the side. I mean, United fans, we don't really talk about it much, but, you know, if we analyze the Barcelona home and away, for example, or away and then at home in, in the semi-final in 08, that was a very different, you know, evolution mm. of United to the one in 99 that steamrolled yeah. and would go home and away and, and attack Barcelona or Bayern or whoever. So, yeah, so that's kind of it. And then, you know, we, we make it to the final. We're in peak condition, Um uh, thankfully, we, we won that final. I also talk about the penalty shootout. Um, there's a funny moment, uh, if you really listen closely, that we win the toss and, and Ferdinand shouts across to the, to the team or the management, and he's kind of unsure if we want to take first or not. And Kios did kind of have that planned out. He wanted Ronaldo to take the third one. Um, so the, the, the you know, the level of planning and, and Ferguson had, had, had it changed a bit as well, and that was something that Ferguson could do. We all know about his evolution, but he could embrace uh, you know I, I think with every assistant and 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 I don't want to down previous assistants too much, but I think with every assistant, Ferguson took a step forward, and that mm-hmm. could be whether that be from Knox to Knox did a great job and was very useful at the time for ferguson, and especially as as a friend as much as a, as a coach, I guess. But then to Brian Kidd, Brian Kidd was another step forward. You know, he knew how to develop players, young players especially. Then from Kidd to McLean. McLean again with the with the analysis that he could give, video analysis, sports science, and, and, and that what he could give. And then to Kirros as well. In fact, Kiros gets mentioned 25 times, I think, in Ferguson's second autobiography, which is <laughs> the same number of times that all his previous coaches are mentioned put together and including Mike Phelan as well who succeeded Kiros and Patrice ever also speaks about post Kiros that that they weren't really as effective especially in Europe especially tactically that 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 you know Ever kind of yeah. says hey, his breath if you like but it, it was crucial and then it was also crucial in and of course Ronaldo leaving and, and Ronaldo once Ronaldo went we never really were a threat on, on you know on the European game again
1: yeah it's uh, it's it's so fascinating because for such a great manager who'd, I mean, uh, a manager who'd already received the knighthood by this time, it's the acceptance, even in 2007, that there was still lessons to be learned. And I think that's a kind of a a lesson for for wider life, but uh, also perhaps for current managers in the game. And this is uh, the, the thing I want to finish on is, uh, looking at Manchester United now and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, a, a student of Sir Alex, um, what can he learn from the attitude of Sir Alex Ferguson to setbacks and his, uh, his willingness, not so much at the start, but at the end, to delegate those responsibilities and and delegate to people who who knew better than he did in Carlos Quiroz and René Mullenstein.
2: Yeah. I think there's a couple of differences before I sort of fully answer the question though. Solskjaer, of course, is much, much, much younger. Uh, You know, when he, you know, when he kind of took over and also, you know, where he is now to where, you know, Ferguson, Ferguson was in his seventies when he retired, for example. And when he took over was in his fifties, very different to Solskjaer. So talking about delegation. You know, one of the reasons for that was also Ferguson's age. You know, I I think mm. he loved being around younger players and all that. And he spoke about it a lot. But he also, you know, was more than happy to, to you know, take a back seat and let certain other people come in and, and do that. Solskjaer's a bit more of his own man, I would say, compared to the Ferguson at, at the end, if you like, who would delegate. I think Ferguson, uh, Solskjaer, of course, wants to be hands-on on everything. Um yeah. Where, whereas Ferguson would would take a back seat, if you like, to some certain you know certainly coaching sessions, for example, um, where I think Solskjaer as well is at a at a at a slight disadvantage, if you like, or a big disadvantage compared to to Ferguson, but also with other managers around at the where Guardiola and and Klopp as well is that on upon arrival. Ferguson was already established as one of the top, top, top coaches, managers, whatever you want to call it in Britain at the time, to some extent, yeah. to a less extent Europe. So when Ferguson arrives, he's already got a huge body. We've got 10 years of, 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 of really good stuff at Aberdeen or a bit less than that. So, and, and same, you know, Guardiola and, and Klopp have 10 years of, of, of top, top, top success. So when they come in, it's like this. Solskjaer doesn't have that and he doesn't have that background. so, when we, when we analyze Solskjaer, we're also thinking, well, he hasn't you know, won a Premier League or a Champions League or a Bundesliga or, or whatever. He hasn't had a period of success. So, you know, he, the, the, the non-Man United fans, let's call it at least, are certainly going to question him a bit quicker as a result. Yeah. Um, where Solskjaer could learn, I suppose, um, would be, you know, and I think he has got his own style of management. I do think in terms of the way we set up, is uh, different to Guardiola and, and, and um, uh, Guardiola and um, and Klopp. You know, we do we do press, we do try and play out from the back, but we are a little bit more on the counter-attacking side. I yeah. do think that that has made us a bit one-dimensional, if you like, when it comes to teams that we need to break down. And I think that was the idea behind. Fernandes and to some extent Van der Beek's purchases. Um, where could he learn specifically? Well, I think, I think he has learned a bit because I think at first, that first six to 12 months, you know, was good for the first three months, but then less over so the next three. And we were thinking, well, we do want someone a bit different to Ferguson. And I think he has moved on a bit and he doesn't kind of talk as often about Ferguson, how it was in the past. Yeah. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, but I think, you know, this, 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 this more than one way to skin a cat. And, and and I think Ferguson certainly had that in his locker, whether it be tactically or whether it be off the pitch mm. or, or whatever. Um, so I guess that's the, that's the, the thing that I would like to see that there's different options we would have on the pitch, uh, really, because yeah. uh, I think that would be the, the best thing that he could possibly do and, and, and find different styles of play and. And maybe, maybe you know, maybe even get you know someone else. But the, the problem that Solskjaer has is we both know that it's a lot more than just the bet, the coach. We we need two or three other people at the club that kind of know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we don't. Know. I mean, it, it's it's obvious. We we know what yeah. Wood's yeah. strengths and weaknesses are, and he, you know he displayed his weaknesses very clearly over the last seven years. And we need him to take on a different role. But the problem is, is removing him from that role. And then, of course, who needs to remove him from that role? With well, the owners. And, and and it's just, I mean, it's so <laughs> yeah. obvious. It's, I mean, you and I could sit down and look at, you know, 20 decisions that the club have made since the Ferguson left. And probably 17 of them would have been wrong, 18. And what makes it worse is probably we knew that at the time.
1: Yeah. So
2: yeah. it's not us being clever after the event
1: yeah it's it's interesting though because you do I have often thought with Solskjaer that, it, that there's been a number of times where it seemed appropriate for him to bring in someone to help in a specific capacity um, such as in the defence at some points over the last two years you, you, you think he could do with someone like Carlos Kieros to handle the, the tactics of his defence but it seems, I, there was a there's a, a nice bit right at the start of of uh, the book uh, from Rene Muldenstein talking about Ferguson showing him a flip book just after he'd been brought into to United. And uh, there are four words that are written down um, in terms of the attacking side of things, pace, power, penetration, and unpredictability. Um, and I think that is, it's really hard to define the the mythical United DNA because I've always thought it doesn't, really necessarily exist, especially, I mean, you, you talked earlier about the defensive performance away to Barca in 2008. Um, it, it doesn't really exist, but if, if it does, I think those four words that Moulinstein says in your book probably define it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that when he said that to me and also, you know, obviously within the book itself, I'm kind of quite excited by that. And I <laughs> yeah. think, you know, he wanted that to be instilled in the players. And, 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 and to be honest with you, Van Percy was very aware of this, this, this idea and, and Mullenstein's, you know, away from the training pitch or slightly away from, on the sidelines, if you like, the talks that they would have together. I mean, Mullenstein has the most obvious picture in Mullenstein's kind of office, if you like, uh, where, uh, you know, his, his house in the UK. I mean, he's also working in Australia as well at the moment, but is a, a picture of him and, and, and Van Persie with the Premier League trophy. That's the one that really takes pride of place in, 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 in Mullenstein's house, so to speak. Um, and you know, I remember him walked during the interview, for example, which was done on Zoom. But he he walked over to the picture and sort of, you know, showed it to me. And I'm like, I had already seen it. To be honest with you, it's so so clear, <laughs> and uh, and you can see. You, I was getting excited as a fan reading it, and I know I know the players were were excited by this this notion and this this flip chart and and talking to Van Persie as well. I mean, there was a, a quote that Ferguson used after his debut away at Everton that we lost one 0 actually. Ferguson was quite upset with the players at the time. And and again, there's a defeat here, but not nowhere near, probably not even the top 50 most memorable defeats, if you like, (laughs) how the season panned out. But Ferguson was angry with the players and he said he wanted them to, to feed the ball in much quicker to Van Persie because it was that moment that, you know, Van Persie would ghost and, and, and Mullenstein mentions just ghost away. And of course, when you, I know what it's like when I'm playing and I'm, I'm not a great player, but sometimes I'm just thinking, I've got this space now, but you need to give me the ball now or it's too late. You know, and, 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 they, and that was something that would really be impressed on Rooney to some extent, depending on his role in the team. And we know how he sort of drifted back a bit during that season, but, but Carrick as well. And as soon as you've got the ball, keep an eye out for Van Persie because he's going to just drift away and you've got to get it into him. We know Van Persie's first touch will be good and his second would often be bang. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and I, I would be excited as a player. And if you're a top player, you react positively to that.
1: Absolutely. Um, John, thank you very much for coming on the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Um, even the defeat is out now and available to buy from all good bookshops. I imagine Waterstones, uh, Amazon, and Pitch Publishing. Is there one specific place you'd like people to to buy it from, though?
2: I mean, Pitch Publishing is the the publishers, so that would be of course great if you went directly to uh, Pitch Publishing on their website, which is pitchpublishing.co.uk. I think and the book obviously even the defeats um yes yeah, so, i mean that's great but if you decide that you you know you've got your your discount with amazon for example or you, you or you, you prefer to go into the shop itself i mean waterstones and wh smith uh, have it too so whatever uh your preferences i uh, hope you enjoy it as much as i did writing
1: it brilliant thank you very much thanks mate Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Manchester United weekly podcast. If you want more stuff like this, you can support the podcast and get extra episodes, um, including more episodes where we talk to authors about their books about Manchester United. You can go to our Patreon. Patreon is a website where podcast listeners can sign up to support the so-called content creators by paying a little bit of money each week and in return, getting back some bonus content, such as extra episodes, bonus episodes, uh, extended interviews, Um, like this one and much more including bonus Q&A's at the end of every episode of the Manchester United weekly podcast you can sign up from as little as 38p a week I believe um, or a little bit more than that and how much you pay depends how much you get back in return if you want more information on that or you want to sign up go to our Twitter at UTD weekly pod that's P-O-D at UTD weekly pod that's P-O-D and you can get more information there if you want to read more from me over the week you can find me on Twitter at Harry Rob And if you want John's book, just look up Even the Defeats, Manchester United, and it should come up on Amazon, Waterstones, Pitt, Publishing, wherever. That's all for now. Have a great week. Goodbye.